begin by uh, apologizing to you for uh, the sound of my voice, playing hurt today. Uh, I've spent this weekend at the junior high retreat. That's where the rest of my family is. I left out of there late yesterday after spending most of the weekend with them, but uh, I think I got a little too excited <clears throat> in some of our uh, junior high mixer games, uh, so I've been, been doing a little bit, of, little bit too much yelling. I also want to begin today, I want to read you an email uh, that I sent to our youngest families over the weekend. Parents, I want to give you a heads up that the title of today's sermon is The Truth About Sex. We'll be discussing some of the prevalent attitudes about sex in our culture and the biblical counter to these perspectives. Given the sensitive nature of this topic, I wanted to let you know in advance so you could plan accordingly for your family. While I do not intend for this message to cross traditional lines of propriety and decorum, I also understand that uh, parents with younger children might not want their little ones to be exposed to this content just yet. Alternatively, your children may be at an age where this sermon could provide an opportunity for good, healthy family dialogue about this delicate subject. In either case, I owe you the courtesy of advance notice that this content will be addressed from the pulpit this Sunday to allow you the opportunity to discern how to best handle this with your families. I want to share that with you because, uh, one, I, I know not everybody is on that email list. Some of you may be guests, and so you may not have received that. Number two, I know even among those of us who receive those emails, we very rarely read them. Um, so, so I want to be sure, even if you got the email, I want you to hear what I had to say. Um, and, and it's just, more importantly than that, it's just a loving thing to do. Uh, as I said, we're, we're not going to cross any, any lines here that I think would, would create a lot of issues for your children. Uh, however, it's just a loving thing to do to let you know that's, that's where we're going here the next few moments. So if you feel like you need to step out with your little one, celebration station, the hallway, <laughs> you know, finding a place to be, I just I kind of wanted to let you know that here at the outset. For years, Tim Tebow has been fairly open about his, his Christian faith. Uh, there's a, a phrase that's popular now to refer to this act of kneeling down in prayer along the sidelines. It's called Tebowing, <laughs> after Tim Tebow. Uh, but as, as a part of his, his Christian faith, Tebow's been kind of mocked for that. But, but even more precisely, Tebow's made no, no, no bones about the fact that he has, has made a commitment to, to abstain from sexual activity until he's married. He's committed himself to being a virgin until the time of his marriage. And that has also drawn Tebow a lot of, uh, of, of criticism, been criticized pretty heavily for that belief. Commentators have long taken cheap shots at Tebow, making you know, cheap jokes about his, his inability to score and, uh, and, and other really crass sorts of, of comments. But when Tebow played a season in New York for the New York Jets, uh, it seemed as if his commitment to remain a virgin until he was married really went to a new level. That's when some of the mockery and the parodies kind of went to a new place. The sports media market in New York is known to be fairly vicious anyway. One comedian based out of New York actually wrote a little song. It was a, a parody of another popular song criticizing and mocking and making fun of Tebow for his commitment to remain sexually pure. And I wouldn't even want to tell you the name of the song because I'd be embarrassed to know that you listened to it because I, I mentioned it. 
Uh, in a television interview in 2011, uh, an actor and a radio host by the name of Jay Thomas laughed at Tebow's decision to save himself for marriage. He made the, the comment that, in his view, having sex before marriage is like test driving the car before you make a down payment. And when another panelist actually pushed back a little and, and said, no, I, I find it admirable that Tebow is so committed to his faith and so committed to sexual purity. When, when that panelist made that comment, Thomas scoffed and said, I, I don't care if he's a good role model for children. In fact, I don't know that he really is a good role model for children. Thomas said, I have no interest in my sons being like Tim Tebow. My kids would die of boredom if they were him. A hundred years ago, the, the decision, the, the idea of saving yourself for marriage would have elicited a much different response. Previous generations would have considered it an, a, a sign of maturity that one could get a, a handle on those sexual impulses. Maturity was measured by sexual restraint, not by sexual indulgence. And in earlier generations, premarital sex was, was considered not only to be wrong, but it was considered embarrassing, a sign of weakness, an inability, again, to master one's own impulses. And this is where you can see one of the great myths about sexuality in our particular culture. It's this idea that progress means abandoning, getting rid of those traditional moral beliefs that have undergirded society for, for so long and replace them with new understandings of freedom and pleasure. Tebow is, is mocked because his traditional Christian views on sexuality are seen by some as, as being backward. His view, his, his decision to remain a, a virgin until he's married is, is seen as antiquated. Whereas on the other side of the ledger, athletes such as Jason Collins or Bruce Jenner or fill in the blank, you know, they're hailed. As, as evidence of the progress we've supposedly made in our understanding of sexuality. Contemporary attitudes about sex tend to go in one of two directions, one of two extremes. You have on the one hand this attitude that is very prevalent in our culture that sex is nothing, and then you also have this, this attitude and this perspective that is equally common and it is that that sex is everything and you find both of those views both of those myths they're popular in our culture but here's the thing the biblical truth lands squarely in between those two extremes and actually exposes them for the lie that they are for the lies that they are Let's talk about this for a minute. This, this idea that you, know, that, that you find that's fairly common, this attitude towards sex that says sex is really nothing. For many people in our culture, that's the attitude. Sex is, is considered to be nothing more, for some, nothing more than, than an enjoyable, pleasurable activity meant to be in, enjoyed by two consenting adults. That's it. 
nothing more to it. For a lot of people today, the, the main issue is consent. And sex doesn't need to be you know, burdened with a lot of rules or a lot of restrictions or prohibitions. If you have two consenting adults who are agreeing here, as long as you have that, you're free to do whatever it is you want. This attitude or this perspective, this view of sex, it views sex really as, as nothing more than a biological exchange. The idea that sex is something that your body just, just needs. And so that's why you hear now in a culture like ours, there's certain phrases we, we talk about in our culture. We, we have a phrase, casual sex. The phrase didn't exist in previous generations. Or in, in some of the some of the looser kind of vernacular, people talk about a, a hooking up culture, a hookup culture. You may wonder, I've, I've heard people say that, what does that mean? Well, it's just, it's a way of saying this, it, it, describing this, this, this cultural norm of no strings attached sex. Sex without any kind of romantic attachment. It's just something that, again, your body craves and needs. Because really, ultimately, so the attitude goes, sex is nothing. But here's what's interesting. Researchers continue to uncover some of the problems with that particular understanding of sex. They continue to, to kind of examine this, quote, hookup culture of ours. And, and they come away with all of this, all this data and, and, and mind you, a lot of the, the research that is out there that you can look at, it doesn't come from, from people of faith. These aren't people who are writing from some sort of Judeo-Christian moral perspective. They're just looking at the culture and they're saying, is this good? Is this, is this good for our, our young people? And they come away with all of this data. One of the things that's interesting is this sort of casual attitude towards sex contributes to an increase and the acts of sexual harassment and misconduct. It just, it just stands to reason, right? That if we think of sexual encounters as nothing more than feeding these animalistic kind of like urges and, and appetites that we have, then it just stands to reason that then you're going to see an increase in the number of egregious animalistic acts towards other people it just stands to reason dr donna fritas is uh, a researcher she studies the intersection of religion and culture and she's done a tremendous amount of research in this particular topic on the sexual attitudes on college campuses and so she has conducted face-to-face -face interviews at universities across the country and she comes away with this conclusion she concludes that young people today are are unhappy with the status quo of our casual sex environment she writes this about these young people she says they're really ambivalent about the sex that they're having according to everything they see in pop culture they're supposed to be having a great time but it's rare that i find a young man or a young woman who says hooking up is the best thing ever and then she says this there's this sort of soullessness fostered in this kind of culture there's this learned way of, of sort of being callous that sex is something that you're not supposed to care about 
I'm struck by her use of that word soullessness. It should be noted that Dr. Freitas uh, does not write out of that distinctly Christian worldview, okay? In fact, she is, is a little worried that people will think that she's arguing for more conservative views on sexuality across the board. She's not, and she makes no bones about that. And yet when she consults the data, when she looks at the data there in her research, those findings lead her to this conclusion that casual sex and its pervasiveness, that it misses the mark at a very deep level, at a soul level. I find that interesting because it really cuts at the heart of this myth associated with casual sex. So oftentimes, this particular attitude, it overlooks the deep emotional, to say nothing of the spiritual dimensions to a sexual encounter. Sex is not meaningless. Far from it. It impacts us at a deep, deep level, at a soul level. So this is one myth that is certainly prevalent in, in our society, this myth that sex is nothing. But this myth is, uh, is, is equally common, this other myth that even though it seems at first blush to kind of contradict the first one, but you find uh, plenty of people who will say, yeah, sex is nothing, but you find plenty of others who, who kind of go to the other end and say, no, it's not that sex is nothing, but instead they, they see sex as being ultimate. Sex is everything. An all-consuming quest to be pursued at, at all costs. Wilhelm Reich was a psychoanalyst who worked under Sigmund Freud. He eventually uh, came to his own conclusions about the importance of sex. In his diary entry dated March 1st, 1919, so nearly 100 years ago, he wrote, from my own experience and from the observation of myself and others, I've become convinced that sexuality is the center around which revolves the whole of social life as well as the inner life of the individual. Sexuality is the center, he says. Uh, Wright came to believe that the goal of psychoanalysis, you go to see a shrink, you know, what's, what's the point, what's the goal? The goal is to get you to a place of sexual health. And he defines sexual health as sexual liberation. Uh, in his view, if you get sexually healthy, and again, what he means is that if you can just like go and pursue those deep-seated sexual desires that you have, if you just go there, all your other neuroses, all your other problems, everything else in your life that's not the way you want it to be, it'll just melt away if you get right sexually. He went on to publish a book in 1936 called The Sexual Revolution. Much of what he proposed was pretty radical for his day. A lot of it would be radical even today but his thesis eventually caught on reich argues that you'll never reach your fullest potential you'll never live a satisfying life until you pursue sexual liberation so don't let anything get in the way of what you want sexually because this is the revolution that the world needs 80 years later can you see how that thought has become so common 80 years later isn't it easy to see the way the, the, the influence of Reich's premise 
because I think we live in a time where, where many will pursue sexual indulgence and, and, and pleasure, sexual identity and all that. They will pursue that as an ultimate expression of life. They'll see sexual liberation as this, this all-consuming quest. Writing about Reich and the implications of his research. This is what Trevin Lack says. Because in order for his re revolution to go forward, Wilhelm taught, the old laws pertaining to sexual morality had to be struck down. And the churches that ordered their life by a biblical view of sex and marriage would have to get with the program or be pushed to the side. Religious convictions loaded people down with guilt and shame, keeping them from sexual happiness. For Reich, it was out with the old and in with the new, at least sexually speaking. And many have taken his words to heart, even if they've never heard the man's name. Because sexual practice and sexual identity have become ultimate pursuits for so many today, as if they are the most meaningful things in the world. Because, as the attitude goes, sex is everything. So those two views about sex are widespread today. The biblical truth counters them both. In fact, with the truth about what the scriptures say about sex, not only does, does, does it counter, but, but the truth about sex actually works as a counterweight against both of those extreme views. Because according to the, to the scriptures that we'll look at here in just a minute, in a world where people are always saying, you know, sex is, sex is nothing, just something your body needs. The biblical worldview counteracts that and says, well, now, wait a minute. Sex is more important than you think it is. And for those on the other end who say, you know, sex is everything. Pursue it at all costs. The biblical counter is, sex, not, sex is not an ultimate pursuit. It's not as important as you think it might be. So for those who think that, think that sex is everything, we find this teaching from the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is an Old Testament book. It was written by someone who just identifies himself as the teacher or the preacher. We don't know who wrote it. That's all he tells us. But commonly, we've assumed that King Solomon in Israel wrote Ecclesiastes. But here's what we find in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. He says, I thought in my heart, come now. I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. I amassed silver and gold for myself. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well. The delights of the heart of man. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. The teacher says he pursued pleasure only to find it to be ultimately meaningless. So he says, riches, silver and gold, been there, done that. Uh, a group of male and female singers, uh, entertainment, I guess is what we would say. Yeah, been there, done that too, right? And then that word that stands out, I, I had a, a, a harem and I denied myself, he says, I denied myself nothing that my eyes 
desired. If Solomon was indeed the author of Ecclesiastes, we do have this little nugget in the scriptures that would maybe point us in that direction. 1 Kings chapter 11 tells us that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. A thousand women. Regardless of the author, the message is still the same. This is not to glorify polygamy or sexual indulgence, far from it. The author says, in the end, what I thought was so important and so ultimate, in the end, was ultimately meaningless. Sexual pleasure does not lead to ultimate fulfillment because, according to the scripture, sex is not everything. So when the world says, man, sex is everything, that is what it's about, pursue that ultimately to know, don't let anything get in the way of you and what you want sexually because sex is everything. God has long desired for his people to push back against that, to say, no, it's not. Sex is not as important as you make it out to be. Sex is not an ultimate pursuit. Sex cannot deliver on the promise that you think it can. That's the counterweight, the biblical truth that is a counterweight to that perspective that says sex is ultimate and sex is everything. And for those who on the other end of the spectrum want to say, ah, sex is nothing, what's the big deal? We find this teaching in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians is a New Testament letter written by the Apostle Paul, and it's written to encourage ethical Christian living. And that's what we find here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is God's word. It says, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. We'll come back to that word in a minute. It's a churchy sounding word. We'll unpack that in a second. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. That you should avoid sexual immorality. That each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust, like the pagans who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or a sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. And then he closes with this line, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Paul says that it is God's will that we should be sanctified. What does that mean? To be sanctified is just a biblical term that means this. It means to be made holy. So it is God's will that we should be made holy. This teaching shows us that it is God's desire to make us holy, to make us like him, to look like him and to talk like him and to act like him and that makes sense because in the very beginning the foundation of all biblical theology is built on this that you and i and all human beings were made in the image of god that god from the very beginning desired that we would look like him and talk like him and think like him and even though that image in you and in me it is corrupted it is perverted it is marred by sin it is twisted by sin even though all that is absolutely true, God's desire never changes. 
from the Old Testament to the New Testament to the very present day, God has long desired for his people to bear his image. It is his desire to sanctify us. So that's why the work of the Holy Spirit is so important. That's why it's so important for us to understand that the Holy Spirit dwells inside of us bodily at the point that we come to believe in Jesus Christ. It is God's gift to us for transformation at the point of baptism. And so the work of the Holy Spirit is to form us into the image and likeness of Jesus to produce this kind of sanctified, holy life within us. But did you notice that when Paul starts this and he says it's God's will that you would be sanctified, it is God's will that you would be made holy, what is the very first place he goes as he starts to unpack that? As he starts to try and explain what that means, what the work of the Spirit towards sanctification looks like, the very first place he goes is to our sex lives. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, and then this, that you should avoid sexual immorality. In a conversation about holiness and sanctification, Paul then goes to the part of our lives that for many of us makes us feel the least holy. The part of our lives that fills most of us with such guilt and such shame, our sexual lives. And he says, this is God's work and this is God's desire to make you holy. And yes, even that deep, dark place that you don't want to go, the place where you shove all your secrets and you shut that door and you lock it and you throw away the key and you just hope and pray nobody ever finds out all the sexual baggage that is in that closet. According to the word of God, what God wants to do is to bring about sanctification in your life and in my life. And that means dealing with all that stuff that I'd rather not think about or talk about or admit to anyone, even myself. The work of God towards sanctification is thorough. And he closes with that word. We are called to live holy lives so in response then to anyone who would say that sex is nothing that it is meaningless it's just biology give your body what it wants god has long desire for his people to push back against that too and say whoa 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 you're wrong sex is not meaningless it is way more important than you think it is we, as God's people, need to steward our sexuality well in order for sanctification to occur. We need his help in stewarding that so that this kind of sanctifying work can take place. I like the way one author puts it. Sex is like a great river. It is rich and deep and good. As long as it stays within its proper banks, its proper channels. The moment a river overflows its banks, though, it becomes dangerous. And the moment sex overflows its God-given banks, it too becomes destructive. The truth about sex is this that it is a sign and that it is a sacred gift. To treat sex as if it's nothing 
diminishes what sex signifies and cheapens its value as a divine gift. And to treat sex as if it's everything is to make an idol out of it and to confuse it with the transcendent reality to which it points. Sex, like marriage, is a sign. It points beyond itself to something deeper. I believe sexual intimacy points beyond itself to reveal the kind of intimacy that we will experience with God someday in eternity. The Bible teaches that sex is a gift. And as a gift, it's meant to be stewarded. It's meant to flourish in a very specific context. The context of a covenantal relationship between a wife and her husband and God himself. And it points us to the intimacy that we will experience in the end. As a result of the covenantal relationship we share with Jesus Christ the Son. The truth about sex is that it is a precious gift from God. Therefore, we should be good stewards of that gift. Let's bow together. Father in heaven, God, you are good. We thank you for your enduring love. Lord God, I pray. I pray right now for my sisters and brothers here. I pray for myself. I pray for all of us who, who hear these words. God, may they rest upon our hearts and upon our minds. Father, may we take these truths, use them as the counterbalance to so many confusing messages, the myths that surround us on this particular topic, Lord God. Thank you for telling us the truth. Thank you for telling us the truth about the things that matter. And in particular today, we want to thank you for telling us the truth about sex. Lord God, this is your gift to us. We confess today and we repent that the church has not talked more about sex. Lord God, we have no reason to bemoan the confusion in this world when it comes to sexual matters, when we as the church refuse to talk about sex, when we refuse to tell the truth to our children or to one another about this beautiful gift that you've given us. So Lord God, we repent of that. I pray that you would renew our hunger and our love for the truth, that our truth would trump our sense of propriety. Lord God, may this be a place where we tell the truth to each other, where we talk truly and your truth reigns supreme. Lord God, I'm mindful of the man or woman here today who is overwhelmed with your truth. God, we can't pretend as if we don't have deep baggage when it comes to this particular issue. Lord God, today I pray that, I pray that the spirit of Jesus Christ would move. You tell us in your word that he came full of grace and truth. Father, I pray that we would hear these words from you in equal measures of grace and truth. For those who need to be convicted by the power of your word and its truth, God, I pray that your spirit would work. For those who need to hear a gracious word from you, God, I pray that you would not let us down. In all this, we thank you for who you are. Lord God, thank you for telling us the truth. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand together and sing our song of invitation.